The book of Ezekiel ends as it began with a vision, this time, of the Lord returning to his temple to dwell with his people, restored and reestablished in their own land. In other words, the book ends on a glorious note. The vision focuses on renewal. Again, a renewed people in a renewed land under new leadership with the Lord dwelling in their midst. Ezekiel's fourth and final vision takes place in 573 BC. So think for a moment, 573 BC, 13 years after the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. Remember, in the second half of the book, after news of the destruction of Jerusalem had reached the exiles, which happens in chapter 33, Ezekiel's messages shift from warnings of impending destruction of the city to messages of hope and future restoration. Specifically, this final vision comes after the promise given in the second half of chapter 37. I will make a covenant of peace with them. The Lord's talking about his people. It will be an everlasting covenant. I will establish them and increase their numbers, and I will put my sanctuary among them forever. My dwelling place will be with them, and I will be their God and they will be my people. According to the first few verses of chapter 40, Ezekiel's carried to a high mountain overlooking the new Jerusalem. The figure of a man acts as a tour guide and leads Ezekiel around the temple complex that descends from heaven already built. In chapters 40 to 43, Ezekiel's given a guided tour, which is depicted in extraordinary detail, of a restored temple. He and his tour guide move through the vestibule, the sanctuary, and the most holy place. As they approach the most holy place, the doorways become smaller, representing increasingly controlled and restricted access to the Lord. Only the tour guide enters the most holy place. You may remember that no human was permitted there, except the high priest, once a year on the Day of Atonement. This section ends with the return of the glory of the Lord, which we'll come back to. Chapters 44 to 46 focus on restored fellowship, along with new roles and procedures for those living in this new reality. In chapter 47, Ezekiel sees a trickle of water flowing from the throne of God that miraculously turns into a powerful river. In the second half of chapter 47 and in chapter 48, new boundaries and tribal allotments are given for the land including the astonishing provision of foreigners inheriting the land. Now, I suspect if you read through these nine chapters, you may have been tempted to think of them as scriptural Psalmonex. I suppose many of us remember Psalmonex. I don't even know if it still exists, but you take it uh, to help you sleep. The next time someone you know shares that they struggle with insomnia, you may be tempted to tell them, 
Just begin reading at Ezekiel 40. By chapter 43 or 4, you'll be sound asleep. Not so fast. You see, all this detail that seems so boring and tedious to us was designed to encourage Ezekiel's audience and other Old Covenant saints that the Lord would leave nothing out of his plan to restore his people to himself in the future. And everything they needed for a proper relationship with him and for worshiping him would be available. The vision and the book ends with the name of this new city. It's not Jerusalem, it's not Zion, but it's Adonai Shema. The Lord is there. What are we to make of this vision? Well, this is an area where there's significant amount of disagreement among Christians as to what these chapters are depicting. Most Bible scholars would agree that these are some of the most difficult passages in the Old Testament to understand. Some want to interpret them in a literal fashion. According to this interpretation, these chapters depict a future temple to be built in what's called the Millennial Period, the thousand-year reign of Christ on earth. Those who opt for this view understand the mention of a thousand years in Revelation to be a literal earthly reign of Jesus, and that would be in Revelation chapter 20. Folks who hold to this interpretation are referred to as premillennialists. A subset of this group, dispensationalists, hold that this temple will be built on earth after the rapture of the church, also during the millennial period, that is the thousand-year reign of Christ. Or for others, they see this actually as a fourth temple to be built later on. Well, what about the sacrifices described in Ezekiel's vision? Well, for folks who understand a literal temple to be built, the sacrifices are commemorative. Now, dispensationalists base their interpretation on a literal hermeneutic, which they say demands that a prophecy such as Ezekiel 40 to 48 should be interpreted literally unless there's a good reason to believe the prophecy should be interpreted figuratively. Now, other Christians, referred to as amillennialists, don't interpret these chapters in a literal fashion, preferring instead to understand Ezekiel's vision to be akin to an impressionistic painting, conveying biblical truths by means of symbolic details that Ezekiel is describing future spiritual realities, but he's doing it in concrete terms that his audience would understand. There are multiples of five that appear throughout this vision. The temple complex is a perfect cube, unlike Solomon's temple. This indicates that Ezekiel has the theological message of his vision chiefly in mind, not simply the size of its walls. Interestingly, interestingly, the Jews who returned to the Promised Land after the exile were never condemned for not building Ezekiel's temple. Instead, they were rebuked for dawdling when it came to building the Lord's house. 
but they were never told to construct what Ezekiel describes. Amillennialists like to point to a passage such as Numbers 12, where the Lord gives Moses, Aaron, and Miriam a biblical interpretation lesson. He tells the three of them that he will speak to Moses clearly and face to face, but that when he speaks to the prophets, he's going to use dreams and riddles. And so we should expect this sort of symbolic language when we read the prophetic material. Amillennialists will also point to the symbolism in Revelation and say, we need to be a little cautious about interpreting numbers literally in such a highly figurative and symbolic book. I fall into this latter category. I don't think we're to interpret these chapters as an architectural blueprint for a new temple. When you need, read these chapters, you'll notice that only two dimensions are given. There are no verti vertical dimensions given for this temple itself. The only vertical dimensions given in the vision are for the wall around the complex, the tables, and the wooden altar. That's why there are so many variations when folks try to produce models of this temple. It's hard to imagine, much less build, a three-dimensional structure when only two dimensions are given. Additionally, there's no command given to build this temple in Ezekiel's vision. Remember, it descends from heaven already built. The tour guide with the measuring line takes Ezekiel on a tour of an exists, existing structure already made. And this is unlike the tabernacle and Solomon's temple. In Exodus 25, Moses is given the plans for how to build the tabernacle. In 1 Chronicles 28.12, David is given the plans for the temple that Solomon will build. Explicit instructions are given to both of them. It's important to remember that this is an in-house discussion among believers. All these views have adherents who love the Lord, who love his word, and are intelligent. Okay? One way to contextualize these chapters is to understand chapters 33 to 37 as promises of hope, as we've already seen last week, and chapters 38 and 39 as the triumph of hope as Gog and Magog are defeated, and chapters 40 to 48, the realization of hope. This vision is clearly set in the framework of Old Covenant images, while at the same time anticipating the radical differences of the new. These descriptions are presented in the garb of Old Covenant forms, but the consummate realization of each of these should be ultimately understood only in terms of their New Covenant realities. Let's allow iron to sharpen iron as you discuss among yourselves the various ways the Christians have interpreted this passage throughout the centuries. Among other things, in this fourth and final vision, we noted earlier 
that Ezekiel sees the return of the glory of the Lord to dwell in the temple, clearly the climax of the vision. So let's think together about how what Ezekiel sees in chapter 43 is fulfilled in the rest of Scripture. So please turn to chapter 43. Then the man brought me to the gate facing east, and I saw the glory of the God of Israel coming from the east. His voice was like the roar of rushing waters, and the land was radiant with his glory. The vision I saw was like the vision I had seen when he came to destroy the city, chapters 8 through 11, and like the visions I had seen by the Kabar River, chapter 1, and I fell face down. The glory of the Lord entered the temple through the gate facing east. Then the Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. While the man was standing beside me, I heard someone speaking to me from inside the temple. He said, Son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place for the soles of my feet. This is where I will live among the Israelites forever. In this vision, the glory of the Lord returns and again fills his temple. What temple? And when does this happen? Do you remember in Ezekiel's second vision where the incremental departure of the glory of the Lord is depicted? Chapters 8 through 11, where the glory of the Lord rested? Well, turn to chapter 11, verses 22 and 23. The glory of the Lord rested on a mountain east of Jerusalem. So here, in chapter 43, Ezekiel witnesses the glory of the Lord coming from the east and returning to the temple. Now we need to fast forward for a minute to 538 BC. Cyrus the Persian defeats the Babylonians and he tells the Jewish exiles, go home. And he says, on your way home, stop and take all the stuff that Nebuchadnezzar stole from Solomon's temple. You can read about that in Ezra 1. Do you remember what happens next? They get off to a good start. And in Ezra 3, we learn that they rebuild the foundation within two years and have this great celebration. What happens next? For 16 years, there's silence until we get to Haggai chapter 1. So please turn in your Bibles to Haggai 1. Haggai is raised up by the Lord in 520 B.C., 16 years after the Israelites celebrated the rebuilding of the foundation back in Ezra chapter 3. Listen to these words. Haggai 1 verse 2. This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say, the time has not yet come for the Lord's house to be built. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains a ruin? You see, the people had got distracted and waylaid by their own concerns. And for those intervening 16 years, they had worked on building their own paneled houses rather than the house of the Lord. 
but the people respond to the prophet's message and they resume building the temple and they complete it within four years and they celebrate its dedication in 516 BC. While they're rebuilding the temple, Haggai gives this amazing prophecy in chapter two. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In a little while, I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations, and what is desired by all nations will come, and I will fill this house with glory. Wow. That's pretty pretty startling because this second temple that was built by the returnees was quite drab and utilitarian. It was more like a Costco rather than Solomon's temple. But they build. They didn't have all the resources that Solomon had. They build it. They dedicate it. And in Ezra chapter 6, we notice something startling. There's no mention of the glory of the Lord filling the second, second temple when it's dedicated. You see, back in Exodus 40, after the tabernacle had been built and dedicated, we read that the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Similarly, after Solomon built the temple and dedicated it, we're told in 1 Kings 8 that the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Here in Ezekiel's fourth vision, we see the glory of the Lord, which had departed before the destruction of Jerusalem, once again returning to his temple. But it doesn't happen when the second temple is is completed and dedicated. You see, at the end of the Old Testament, the Israelites have returned from exile, but they're still exiled from the glory of the Lord. So when and how is Ezekiel's picture of the glory of the Lord returning to his temple fulfilled? I'm going to briefly give you an interpretation that I think best deals with the biblical information. We talked about God's glory way back in session two when we looked at Ezekiel's inaugural vision. God's glory is his visible and active presence in the midst of his people. The presence of God's glory signaled the presence of God himself. And as we come to the close of the Old Testament and the later prophetic writings, we see a shift taking place. The divine glory becomes messianic and eschatological. What do the prophets say about God's glory in this period? Well, listen to Isaiah 40, verse 5. Now, even though I believe the 8th century prophet Isaiah wrote this, he's talking about the post-exilic period. He talks about the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all people will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. All people? So the glory of the Lord is not in the holy of holies, above the Ark of the Covenant in a special way. Now all people will see it together. Or Habakkuk, writing probably a little before Ezekiel, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And then Zechariah 14, on that day, 
holy to the Lord will be inscribed on the bells of the horses and the cooking pots in the Lord's house will be like the sacred bowls in front of the altar. Every pot in Jerusalem and Judah will be holy to the Lord Almighty. And all who come to sacrifice will take some of the pots and cook in them. Holy to the Lord. Where was this inscription found? On the high priest's turban. And you see what's happening. The outward symbols of the old covenant are so intensified with the fullness of the glory of the new covenant that they're, they're transfigured and transformed. So holy will be the city that what was inscribed on the high priest's turban will be found on the horse bells and the chia pets and the air fryers in every kitchen. Do you see how at the end of the Old Testament, something great is about to happen? These passages at the end of the Old Testament are preparing God's people for a new thing that the Lord will do that will break the bounds of Old Covenant realities. And a spiritually sensitive Israelite would have caught this, though they wouldn't have understood the details. So, as we said, at the end of the Old Testament, the Israelites have returned from exile, but they're still exiled from God's glory. What happens next? Stay tuned. <music>